This morning we come to the end of Hebrews chapter 9 and we'll be considering together with the Lord's help verses 23 to 28, the remainder of the chapter, Hebrews 9, verses 23 to 28. We've just read the chapter. Our text begins in verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. We all are familiar with the experience of the anticipation of the arrival of someone that we have been waiting for. That could be waiting for them at the airport. It could be waiting for them at the house. Children, I remember what it was like when when I was your age and the experience of this. You would have uh, family or perhaps friends whom you felt like you hadn't seen forever and you're told that they're coming to the house and so there's all the anticipation and you may be four days out saying when are they coming and your father says well they're, they're coming lord willing in four days and finally the day comes you wake up in the morning you're excited everybody's busying about cleaning the house preparing food putting things in order perhaps you sit on the couch with your sibling and you're looking out the window waiting and looking right one car goes by that's not them another car goes by that's not them and you 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 yell to your mama when are they coming well they'll be here you know lord willing you know this evening and you wait on and you think about them you picture them in your mind what they looked like you maybe you remember them bringing you little tokens or gifts in the past what will they bring and there's all sorts of excitement until at last their car pulls in the driveway. You're looking out the window. And you run through the house and tell everyone they're here, they're here, they're here. And they appear at last at the door and they come in and there's the exchange of greetings and hugs and, and all of the things that are associated with it. There's excitement about the anticipation of the arrival of someone that we're, we're longing for. Well, if you can understand that, children, perhaps you can understand a little bit of the experience of the Old Testament church. Because there was the Old Testament church year after year, generation after generation, century after century with anticipation, right? They're looking for the Messiah. They're longing for the Messiah. They're waiting for the Messiah. They're wanting the Messiah to come as God had promised them. And so as you work your way through the history of the Old Testament, there's this groundswell that's, that's pushing and pulling toward the culmination in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Well, this morning we come to the end of Hebrews chapter 9, and you'll remember the context. We've been tracing the connection between the Old Testament types and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the antitype, right? A type is a symbol, a picture, something that points forward. The antitype is the thing that is being symbolized, right? It is the substance. The antitype is Jesus Christ himself, the substance of Christ's sacrifice. And so we've seen the connection between these, these two things. And now at the end of the chapter, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, turns to the application of the preceding sections that we've been considering together. And in applying all that, that we've been hearing in recent weeks and months, uh, he utilizes again a series of contrasts throughout these, these verses. And so in our text, in verses 23 to 28, 
I'll point out to you that there are three sections here. And at the end of each of these sections, there is a reference to Christ appearing. At the end of these sections, there is a reference to Christ appearing. So we're going to note three things this morning in dependence upon the Lord. First of all, Christ's present appearance in heaven. So first of all, Christ's present appearance in heaven, verses 23 and 24. You'll notice at the end of verse 24, it says, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Christ's present appearance in heaven. Now we think of Christ's ascension and of his appearance on the other side of those clouds which received him in heaven. And we recognize that that includes his kingship. And we think along those lines. Psalm 24, ye gates lift up your heads, ye doors that last for a be lifted up that so the king of glory enter may. And we think of the, the regal glory of Christ ascending as this altogether beautiful and powerful king. And he is exalted above all that is in heaven and that is in earth. And that's right for us to think along those lines. But here, his present appearance in heaven, the emphasis in our text is upon his appearance in heaven as a high priest. So the emphasis doesn't fall on his kingship, but rather on his priesthood. And remember the background that we have here, right? The high priest, Aaron and his descendants, they would, they would go into, they would enter into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, as described in Leviticus 16. And they would enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the atoning sacrifice. They would carry that blood with them as they passed through the veil into the inner sanctum or sanctuary in order to apply that blood, to sprinkle that blood upon the ark and the, 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 the mercy seat and, and so on and so forth. Well, we're told here in this section that just as that was the case, and we know the picture, so the Lord Jesus Christ as high priest, having made the sacrifice of himself, that atoning work, not upon an altar, but upon the cross of Calvary, has passed, as it were, with that blood through the veil, and he has entered into the heavens themselves, so that when we turn to Revelation chapter 5, we have this description of him in heaven as a lamb that has been slain. There he is, appearing on behalf of God's people. And the word here, the Greek word for appear at the end of verse 24, now to appear, is actually a, a forensic term. So it's a, it's a legal term. That, uh, that, that is being employed. It's the kind of language that you would associate with an attorney appearing before a judge in order to, to argue a case. And this is, this is what's being brought out in, in this passage. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ appearing in heaven in order to plead the merits and in order to seek the blessings that he has purchased for his people, to plead the merits of his atoning sacrifice, to seek the blessings that he has purchased for his, his people. What does that mean? Well, we understand, we understand the language. We can, we can grab a hold of the picture. We, we see the reality of what's being described, the objective reality that Christ Jesus, the God-man, as high priest, is now 
in the heavens. He has appeared there on our behalf before God. But behind it and in it and through it, what we need to see is the love that that represents, the compassion that that represents, the care for Christ's people that that represents, and all of those things. Because as the passage says, he is there for us. Last two words of verse 24. He is there for us. And so he is discharging the interests of his own people. Why, as high priest, is he exalted above heaven? It is in order to carry out in deep love for his people all that pertains to their own interests, all that pertains to their own good, eternal good, and so on. We can think to ourselves, why is Christ in heaven? We know why he was on the earth. We understand what that was about. Why now has he appeared in heaven rather than remaining among us upon the earth? Well, just as he came to earth for us, so he has ascended to heaven for us. And he is there carrying out his glorious ministry with his people in his eye, with his people upon his heart, in order to secure for them copious blessings. And so you look at verse 23 and it opens with these words, it was therefore necessary. So he's drawing a conclusion, therefore, right? He's drawing a conclusion on the basis of what we saw last week and what precedes it. He says, therefore, it was necessary. Well, you think to yourself, how so? Why, why was it necessary? The pattern of things in heaven should be purified. Uh, the, pattern, the patterns of things should be purified with these, that is the sprinkling of blood and so on. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. It is necessary. How so? Why? Why is that necessary? Why is it necessary that the things, the, 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 the heavenly things themselves must be purified with something different than what the tabernacle was purified with. Well, the victim must correspond to the nature of the offenses which are being atoned for. And so the, the animal blood which was shed, the calves and goats and bulls and so on and so forth, the animal blood was sufficient for the ceremonial purification that had been appointed. But a nobler sacrifice was necessary for the atonement of the moral guilt of God's people and the eternal blessings that they stood in need of. And so you see the contrast. On one hand, you have the pattern, you have the picture book, you have the figure, all of which speaks to the tabernacle and the priestly ministry and the ordinances and sacrifices and so on. And then over against that, on the other side of all of that, you have the things in the heavens. That is, the, the realities that those, those earthly things depicted. Well, if you're following along carefully, you think, okay, when it says the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, why is it? that the heavenly things would need to be purified at all? But that's the question I have, among others. Because the heavenly things themselves, all that, that we've been hearing over recent weeks and months, 
all the heavenly things, all that that entails, aren't in themselves unclean, it would seem. Why do they need to be purified? The word purified has two parts, right? It's the external part. Think of it in terms of dedication, as well as the internal part of cleansing what is filthy, what is dirty, and so on. Well, the reason that the passage says that the, the heavenly things have to be purified with something greater, namely Christ's death, is because those heavenly things include the contents that will inhabit heaven, which is the Lord's own people, redeemed sinners. We pollute everything that we touch. We saw last week in the text that precedes this one that even the vessels of the sanctuary had to be purified. There, there's nothing defiled in them of themselves. They were appointed by God, but they are hand, they're defiled by, by being handled by us. And so even in the New Testament ordinances that the Lord's given, they're pure ordinances that God's given, but our use of them brings a defiling effect so that even our prayers have to be purified and our preaching has to be purified and our reading has to be purified and the sacraments and so on and so forth, all with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, washed in blood, cleansed from all sin. We noted last week the connection with Exodus chapter 24, and we read it last week, we referred to it, it's quoted in the passage we were considering and if you, you go to Exodus 24 and you look at verses 8 to 11, what we have there in some ways is an Old Testament version of the Mount of Transfiguration. In verses 8 to 11, it's like a, a little precursor, if you will, to the Mount of Transfiguration. Why? Because there's Moses, okay, and Aaron, and even Nadab and Abihu, but also the 70 elders who are representing the people. And all of them are gathered together in the presence, the immediate presence of God. And they're at ease. They're without fear and trepidation. They're dwelling in the presence of God himself. Their sacrifice had been made and communion with God had been obtained. And there they sat down in fellowship with the God of glory. And so it is for the Lord's people in the New Testament. In verse 24, it goes on for, so it's drawing a further argument. Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, the real, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So now he's actually turning the argument to talk about the place, the place that Christ has gone, the place that Christ has, has entered. He's saying Jesus Christ didn't enter into the tabernacle, that tent that was made with hands. And isn't it interesting that the Lord Jesus Christ, as we read through the gospels in the New Testament, we find Christ going up to the temple. And so he's in Jerusalem. You know, from the days of his youth, he's at the temple. He's interfacing with the doctors and questions and answers that are, being, that, are, that are being asked and answered. We see him at the temple in various places in his adult ministry as well. But we never see, nor hear, because it never happened, 
the Lord Jesus Christ entering into the holy place, that inner sanctum on the Day of Atonement. And one thinks of Christ's own self-consciousness as the God-man. There he is at the temple. He is the one to which all of this had pointed. He is the one who alone, in a sense, would be, humanly speaking, qualified to pass through that veil. He alone is the one who, who owns, as it were, that holy of holies. That is, in a sense, his place above everyone else's place. And yet he never enters into the holy place throughout his earthly ministry. Why? Because he had come to fulfill all of this by entering into what it could only point. And so at his cross, the veil is torn from top to bottom and Christ ascends in due course into the heavens themselves, into the celestial sanctuary. And he does so, as I've said, for us in order that we might have the application of all the benefits. Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, all of this is Christ for us. Christ is accomplishing objective realities for and on behalf of his people. But he also, in, we, he also intends to be Christ in us. And he intends for all of the benefits to be bequeathed to us. And so he is doing right now. But into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. He is, he is in this present season and always. He is bringing the application of all of those benefits to bear upon our own souls. This should bring to us, among other things, an assurance of success. It's all in the hand of Christ. And Christ is in the place that no other can occupy. And he occupies it on behalf of his people. We have absolute assurance in the success of all that he has secured and all that he delivers and provides for us. We can be absolutely assured of the discharge of the full guilt of all of the sins of every believing soul. We know that for certain because of this text. Because if it wasn't so, if it wasn't absolutely certain, secured, finished, and final, that the discharge of our guilt had been addressed and borne away in all that Christ has done, then there would be no appearance of Jesus Christ in heaven. He would be unable to appear in heaven as the surety on behalf of his people in that capacity as, as our surety. But he is, the doors are flung wide open and he, is, he receives a triumphal entrance and, and reception because indeed he has secured it for us. It also brings with it what is uncomfortable to many, indeed offensive to many, because all of this, underlines the fact that you need cleansing, that you are a dirty, filthy, rotten, stinking, polluted, defiled sinner, inside and out, top to bottom. 
That's offensive. It's offensive to the natural man to be told that we are filthy. We think of ourselves as clean and good and so on and so forth. And the Lord comes and he says, no, 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 no. There's only one way to be clean, to be spiritually clean before the all-seeing eye of God, and that is to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Only to be saved and redeemed through the sacrifice of Christ. Only to be found in union with him and, and to receive all of the saving benefits of his, his sacrifice. It's offensive to the unbeliever. But it is an overwhelming comfort to the believer. The believer doesn't have to, the, belie the believer doesn't stumble at all by this, by this news that we're defiled and filthy and so on. The believer doesn't get their hackles up about that. The believer doesn't take issue with that. The believer actually feels dirty. The believer feels sinful. At times, some of you perhaps feel you can't go to heaven because you would pollute heaven itself if you were to be there. This sense of, of sin, this sense of, of transgression, of guilt, of iniquity, of defiance and disobedience. All of that is pressed home upon our hearts and the devil gives aid. He comes as the accuser of the brethren. He points out this thing and that thing and the other thing. and Things that perhaps we would have passed over or forgotten and so on. And the believer has no difficulty with a sense that we are dirty, that we are polluted, that we are sinful. But Christ's present appearance in heaven comes to us ringing as good news in our ears and our hearts. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is coming, as it were, from above the highest heavens, where he is standing as the high priest of his believing people, and the Lord Jesus Christ comes in this text and in so many others. And he's saying, come, you who are dirty, come. Come, you who are defiled, inside and out. Come, you who are sinful, you who are soiled and stained. The Lord Jesus Christ says, come, come, come. He commands us to come unto him. Why? because he has not died in vain. Those drops of blood were not shed in vain. And he has not come to call the righteous, but sinners unto repentance. And so Christ Jesus stands in heaven. He stands within that holy place. He stands as the centerpiece enthroned in the holy of holies. Why? Not to keep you out which is the temptation of some of you, but to cleanse you in order to bring you in. To cleanse you in order to bring you in. So Christ's presence appearance in heaven. Secondly, Christ's past appearance on earth, verses 25 and 26. Christ's past appearance on earth. Look at the end of verse 26. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared, past tense, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now we have 
a different Greek word than was used at the end of verse 24. The word appeared here in our English translation is different than the word that was used in verse 24. But it carries with it the idea that, that Paul captures in, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, when he says that Jesus was manifest in the flesh. That the Lord Jesus Christ has come to show himself in order to put away sin by the sacrifice of, of himself. And so in verse 25, nor yet that he should offer himself often. Here we have a contrast, right? On one hand, you have Aaron, and he is going often into the holy place, which means once a year. That's often. And his descendants, year by year by year, decade, century, one flows after the other. In they go, time and time and time again. So on one hand, you have Aaron who's going often, uh, making these, these sacrifices often. Here you have Christ, and it is described as once. Nor yet that he should offer himself sacrifice often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. But it says toward the end of verse 26, but now once in the end of the world. You say, okay, why is that? You can appreciate the objection that's coming from, from the, the Jewish mind. If, if Aaron is a type of Christ and if Christ fulfills what Aaron did, and if Aaron had to go and sacrifice year by year in order to make atonement for for Israel, why hasn't Jesus had to be sacrificed annually in order to make atonement for one rising generation after another since the beginning of, of the world? And the answer is because in Christ's sacrifice, we have absolute perfection. We have comprehensive completion. Christ's sacrifice is such that it will admit no repetition at all. It will not admit any repetition at all. You say, okay, what makes Christ's sacrifice of that nature, of that character? What, what, why, why is his sacrifice such that it can never be repeated? Well, we could begin to list a lot of things. The first and biggest one would be the dignity of his person. Who is it that died on the cross of Calvary? The Son of God. The God-man. The language of Acts 20. The blood of God was shed. The blood of the one who is God. The God-man. The dignity of his person secures this as well as the nature of the sacrifice itself, it was final because it was full atonement for all of the sins of all the elect. And because it received the full approbation and acceptance of the Father. And so it's not repeated because it can't be repeated. In fact, it would be a grievous wickedness to suggest that it be repeated. Because to say that it needs to be repeated would be to say that there is something weak, ineffectual, something lacking, something necessary that needs to be added to the sacrifice 
that he offered on Golgotha. And that's blasphemy, to suggest that. Which reinforces, as I said, I think last week or the week before, it speaks to the dreadful blasphemy, the abhorrent blasphemy of Rome in their wickedness with their wicked priests who pretend day by day and week by week to offer the fresh sacrifice of Jesus Christ and to present Christ afresh before God. This is to deny the sufficiency and finality of Christ's sacrifice, and it is utterly abominable and abhorrent in the sight of God. And so too should be in our own sight and eyes. Notice what else it says in terms of contrast. As the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. Think about this. There's the high priest in the Old Testament. You remember, he bore the names of God's people, which were engraven upon his bre the, 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 the breastplate. Right? He, he bore their names into the veil he went with the names of Israel inscribed hanging upon his chest, presented before the throne that was typified in, in, in the ark. He bore the sins of the people with the blood that had been shed. All of that was carried with him into the holy place. And we can say both of these are true of the Lord Jesus Christ. He bore the names of his people. He bore the sins of his people. But there is one marked difference between the Old Testament priest and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is this. He entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. The Lord did not require the blood of the people themselves. He did not bring the blood of Israel he did not bring his own blood as high priest, but he brought with him the blood of others, the blood of the sacrifice that God had appointed. Turn your gaze now to the Lord Jesus Christ. God spared not his own son. He bore the names, yes. He bore the sins, yes. But he also bore his own blood. His own blood was shed. And so he did it once, not often. Otherwise, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ would have no more efficacy than the blood of goats and, and, and calves. Aaron offered this repeatedly, but he never once, not once, suffered himself. As priest, he was an offerer, but he was never a sufferer. He himself was not the sacrifice offered. The Lord Jesus Christ both suffers and offers. He does what Aaron couldn't do. He both offers and suffers. Why? Because he is both the priest offering and the sacrifice that is offered. And so he does both. 
Christ atoned for all the sins of all the elect, past, present, and future. They say he would have had to, the text says he would have had to been offered over and over from the beginning of the world. You have a contrast between the beginning of the world and then the end of the world in our text. Another contrast, literally in the Greek, the consummation of the ages. The end of the world is the consummation of the ages. But the Lord Jesus Christ sacrifices such that it covers the whole from the beginning, Adam, to the end, at Christ's coming. And we're told that he appeared then, he appeared on earth to put away sin, right? The disannulling of sin. This is an extremely strong word in, in the Greek. He actually destroyed the dominion of sin. He canceled the guilt of sin. He paid the, dent, the debt of sin. He, if you will, abolished sin in his putting away of sin. Well, when you're humbled, broken, laid low under your sin, pray tell which is greater, the evil of my sin or the value and virtue of Christ's blood and sacrifice. Answer the question, which is greater, the evil of the sin with which you feel loaded and weighed down or the value and virtue of Christ's blood. Christ's sacrifice is of infinitely greater value, infinitely greater power, right? In verse 26, we're told that he put it away. He abolished it. He obliterated it. In verse 28, we're told that he bears it away, right? The one is legal. The other is priestly, if you will. He bears it away by the offering up of himself on the altar of the cross, of Calvary. And so we have Christ's past appearance on earth. But then thirdly, we have Christ's future appearance at his second coming. Christ's future appearance at his second coming, verses 27 and 28. So you go to the end of verse 29, uh, 28. Um, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Shall appear. This is future, Christ's future appearance at his second coming. And here the Greek word is, for our English word appear, is to be seen. He is to be seen a second time. And so we are to look for him. Why, why does it say, you know, that we're to be looking for him? Again, we're bringing with us all that we've been hearing in this text. We have to bring Leviticus 16 with us. We have to bring all this Old Testament typology with us. Go back to the Old Testament. They would see Aaron. He would go in on the Day of Atonement. He'd go into the first sanctuary, right, the holy place. And all of the other priests would have to be put out with the rest of the congregation. No one's in that tent but him. They're all outside. And there they waited and then he would enter by himself solo through that veil into the second place, the whole, the inner sanctum of the, of the holy place. And all the time, the whole rest of Israel, all of God's people, the congregation of the Lord, waited eagerly outside. They're waiting eagerly out there until they see Aaron come back out to bless them. And so they're waiting eagerly. The blood's being presented before the Lord. The Lord is, is, is receiving the, the sacrifices he's appointed and so on. We need the blessing. We want the blessing. 
They're waiting and wondering and so on. And finally, the priest comes out and pronounces the blessing upon them. You have a picture of this in the New Testament, right? Remember Elizabeth's husband, Zacharias? He is high priest that year. And we're told that he is the one therefore appointed to go into the Holy of Holies. And we're told that all of the people are outside praying, which is exactly what they should be doing. The incense has been offered up and the censer has been taken into the, into the holy place. They're outside praying and they're waiting and they're wondering what's taking him so long. And they're becoming anxious. You know, has it been accepted? Are we going to receive the blessing? And so they're beginning to shift in their seats, if you will, and wring their hands a little. Why is Zechariah taking so long? Why is Zechariah taking so long? They're waiting for him. It's that same picture that's given in the Old Testament. And so you'll notice here that what's being put forward is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's made the atonement on the cross. He has gone into, passed through the veil, into the Holy of Holies. He's gone into heaven. And he shall yet reappear and be seen by those who wait for him the second time in order to bestow blessings, even the eternal salvation of his people. And so the contrast is, is poignant, isn't it? You have, as this was the case, so this is the case, the passage says. It goes on, as men are appointed once to die, so Christ is once offered. There's an appointment that came within the council of the Trinity. God appointed the day, the circumstances, the time, the manner, all the details on which Christ's sacrifice of himself would be made. How? Well, he did it bearing the sins of his people. Why? In order that he might bring salvation to his people, the passage says. And there's a contrast, isn't there? between the judgment that those who die outside of Christ will face and the salvation that those inside the Lord Jesus Christ will receive. And so it says, as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Here's your first appointment. Your death, the death of men. Right? You're going to die. This is inevitable. This is unpreventable. You are going to die. Every time you and I go to a funeral, it's a shot across our bow. My day is coming. It won't be long when there will be people, friends and family assembled, just like I see at a funeral. It'll be me in the casket. It'll be me that's being laid in the earth. I'm going to die. I absolutely, inevitably, unpreventably am going to die. And that, that day has been appointed by God himself. Just, and Job brings this out, just as your birthday, the day of your birth was appointed, the day of your death is appointed, unalterable. Both your B day and your D day, if you will. They're both appointed by the Lord. And so this message comes, right? There's, you can miss your dentist appointment. You can miss an appointment with your employer. You can miss an appointment to meet your friend for coffee or a phone appointment. You will never, ever, ever miss this appointment. You will keep this appointment. You're going to die. And you can busy yourself in school, children, but you're going to die. 
You can, you can busy yourself and have all sorts of accomplishments in, in your workplace, but you are going to die. You can build relationships and get married and have children, but you're going to die. You can have all sorts of friendships. You can engage in all sorts of recreational activities, but you are going to die. You can spend untold hours sleeping in this world, but you're going to die. And the day is coming when the sleep of death will overtake you, from which you will never wake in this world prior to Christ's second coming. You're going to die. And men will ignore it, and they'll distract themselves from it, and they'll fool themselves into playing games that, yeah, it's not going to happen for a super long time, or maybe this, or maybe that. I don't have to worry about these things. You are going to die. And as it is appointed unto men, once to die. The sagacious Dr. Samuel Johnson, who was a 18th century Englishman, was known for his aphorisms, right? He was known for those pithy, uh, profound sayings. And there are many of them that are, are given, but one that has stuck with me. When a man knows that he shall be hanged in a fortnight. When a man knows that he shall be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. There's something there, isn't there? You don't know if your exit out the door of death is going to take place in a fortnight or in a decade or tonight or in many decades since. But you know it's coming, and it should concentrate your mind wonderfully. Because there's a second appointment that follows it. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the, the judgment. This is another appointment which you will keep. All of us, right? Paul brings this out when he's talking to the Athenians in Acts 17, verse 31. Death is not the end. You better number your days in order that you apply your hearts to wisdom. Because death is not the end. You're not just going to decompose. Outside of Christ, you have damnation waiting you. You think about the likelihood of the exact number of people in this room being assembled together at any time in one place ever again. It's possible we're a congregation. The exact number you know, no one add additional, no one missing. But we know for certain that everybody in this room will be assembled together in the same place at the same time. If not in this world, it will be at the bar of judgment. It will be before the august throne of that white throne of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We will be assembled together in order to give an account for every idle word in the flesh, in order to give an answer for all the evil deeds that we have done. And for some of you, you think little about what matters most. And you think much about what matters little. And the Lord is coming to you and he's saying, you're going to die and you're going to be judged. And no one can escape it. The most powerful, brilliant, um, wealthy people on the planet, no one can can fight their way out, think their way out, buy their way out 
of standing before Christ at the judgment. And so we need to still our minds on these inescapable realities. Well, just as this is so, and as, it says in verse 7, verse 28, so Christ was, was, was once offered to bear the sins of many. Christ was offered. This too has a finality, an irreversibility. The Lord Jesus Christ has definitively and comprehensively borne the sins of his elect people. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. My dear believing friend, is this not true? You look for him. You're supposed to, you desire to look for him. You desire to, to wait for him. And looking for him entails all sorts of things. It entails faith. It entails faith in the certainty of his appearance, the certainty of his coming. It entails love, the desire for his coming. It entails longing so that we can say in the words of Revelation, even so, come, Lord Jesus. It involves waiting patiently amidst many discouragements in this world. It involves preparation of our own selves and souls for his coming. But there is a looking for him. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time. It says, without sin. What does that mean? Without sin unto salvation. He won't be coming any longer as the one to whom the sins of his elect people are imputed to him. It'll be without sin unto salvation. It'll be his second coming is very different than his first coming in many respects, including this. In his first coming, he came with sin. He came as the sin bearer throughout his life. And culminating upon the cross. He came with the sins of his people upon him. But in his second coming it will not be so. It will be without sin unto salvation. He will be coming as the conqueror of sin. And as the conqueror of Satan. He will be coming as the savior. He will be coming in order to glorify the redeemed of the Lord. And to bring into to consummation all of their salvation. There will be an open manifestation of the once for all and final sacrifice for sin and all that it has accomplished in its furthest extent under the salvation of his people. For those of you who are believing, this is good news indeed. The question comes, do you just want to escape hell, but do you desire Christ? And long for his coming. Because there are some who profess the true religion. And who have no. Uh, who do not possess saving faith. In the redeemer. Personal saving faith in the redeemer. Who if they were honest. Some of you think to yourself. Well to be honest. I wish his coming were delayed. I wish I wish. In fact I wish his, his coming could be delayed. As long as possible in order that I can engage in all of the other things I'm interested in. I remember growing up in my congregation and the young people talking about, well, I hope, hope he doesn't come before I get married. I'd like to get married, then he comes. You know, there's that kind of talk. For the believer, nothing is desired more than Christ himself. 
Is it merely deliverance from hell that you look for? Or is it the desire for Christ himself? Here is the Lord of glory. Christ has entered heaven for us. He has put away sin for us. He will return with salvation for us. Each of these things bring out fulfillment. Each of these things press home upon our consciences. The demands of the gospel, each of these things bring the salve of consolation to sin-sick souls who are taking refuge under the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus is all. And in his appearance in heaven, his appearance on earth, his appearance in his second coming, Christ has secured the believer's acceptance in his present appearance in heaven. He has acted for the believer in his past appearance on earth. And he has prepared the way for the future in his coming appearance at his second return. Well, may the Lord help us as we drink in all that is revealed to us of the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, we bow down before thy majesty. And thy majesty as it is set forth and displayed in the person of thy Son. We can say who is like unto him. How thankful we are that he has appeared in the fullness of time as the incarnate word. That he has appeared in heaven as the surety of his people. That he will yet appear again in his second coming without sin unto salvation, for the eternal good of his people. O oh Lord, we esteem him, we adore him, we praise him. Grant that we would be drawn to him. Grant that we would be brought to saving faith in him. Grant that we would be brought to love him as the lover of our souls. For we ask it in Jesus' name.